What's going on, everybody? Hotep to the family. Ashe to all the people out there. Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network. This is the podcast where we give our point of view of controversial topics from our experience, Black history, and our knowledge as African and Americans. In the words of Maya Angelou, do your best until you know better, and when you know better, do better. So it's important that we search for information to discover what you don't know, so you can discover the best you. And I'm joined here by my co-host, Shaquan Battle, to the right of me. And to the right of him is Jerome Battle. For anybody that gets us confused, his beard is fully, <laughs> fully there. Yeah, we we can't yeah. get nothing in here. So for the people who say, I don't even know which one be talking sometimes. <laughs> He's over there. I'm right here. Okay. So uh, again, thank everybody for tuning in to the previous episodes. Thank for all the love, all the new people who have tuned in. Um, anybody that shares on Facebook or on Instagram. Anybody that comments, um, we love you. We appreciate you. Um, shout out to anybody that watches on YouTube or you listen on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Um, we appreciate you. Um, how are you guys? How are you? We, we're good. Are we, and, good. And since we're mentioning famous quotes, we're going to do Spike Lee and say, get on the bus. <laughs> we're going to take you on the educational ride. Get on the bus. Absolutely. Uh, I, it's funny. I was just thinking the other day uh, when you listen to these episodes, it's like we're we're time traveling exactly. through black history. Um, that's the feeling that I get whenever I'm researching, whenever I'm listening to these episodes, it's almost feel like we're, we're time traveling back through uh, black history and giving out information that was not taught in school. Um, Absolutely. Got a sponsor today. Uh, the world is opening back up and it's time that your closet opened back up as well. Shot with cool breeze kicks for your everyday needs to feel fresh again. If you're a person who is always looking for the latest sneakers to express yourself, if you're a person who loves opening up a shoe box and enjoy that fresh shoe look or that fresh shoe smell, if you're a person who lays their outfit on the bed and think, which shoes should I kill them with today? Trust me, cool breeze kicks is for you. It's the place you want to shop. Follow on the Facebook page, Cool Breeze Kicks, and that's a Z at the end, so it'll be K-I-C-K-Z. And also follow on Instagram at CB underscore kicks with the Z. Um, shout out to Tom Ron Staples uh, starting this company uh, and support him. And when you listen to this episode, you should under you'll understand why you should support right. him. Absolutely. So uh, cool Absolutely. breeze kicks. Uh, shout out to Tyron Staples. Your sneakers. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to jump right in, man. Uh, so. Where y'all want to start? Where y'all want to start with this? Uh, you, <laughs> you, you know. You already know. Don't even ask. All right, so for today's episode, we are talking about black fortunes. We're talking about black millionaires. We're talking about black towns. Um, we want to do this episode because everybody, shout out to all of the, the people out there who have been researching information on the Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood, Black Wall Street um, incident and learning about black history. Um, not just black people, white people have been learning about this. I've seen it shared all over Facebook. Um, it was the 100th anniversary of Black Wall Street. That's right. And seeing so many people engaged into the topic, um, the new documentary that came out produced by Russell Westbrook. Um, I went into Barnes and Noble. There were numerous of books on this subject and that weren't in there at first. 
Uh, so seeing so many people gathered around this topic is an opportunity. That, it's, a, it's an opportunity to begin to share about other places, uh, having conversations with people. And I was like, well, you know, there were other places like that. And that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about those other places, talk about those people who help produce these places and give information that um, most people didn't know about. And when you look at Tulsa, Oklahoma, or you look at any of these other places like Rosewood, um, they came to be through uh, segregation. Absolutely. So when, when you think about the, the black codes or you think about the reconstruction period, you think about things that we've covered on this podcast in history, um, a lot of these settlements came from um, segregation. That's right. Or safe havens, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. So a lot of places came from either safe havens or segregation. And a lot of flourished after race riots, after race riots, right. they realized, you know, we have to go do this by ourselves, for ourselves, right. and, and our own. And after the Great area. Depression, uh, that's one of the great things about what we did is we supported those smaller businesses. Some of those larger businesses went out of business mm -hmm. and the black community can continue to support those black owned businesses. And they were able to not only survive, but flourish mm -hmm. after enduring the, the Great Depression. Absolutely. So that, that's something that we see as a common theme is that we, there was there's a picture floating around of the different massacres that happened uh, not just in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if you look at any of those places where it happened, those are predominantly black places, black right. settlements um, uh, of people, which led us right after um, World War One, which right. we talked about last week. A lot of these race massacres happened sometime after a war or after African-Americans done something incredible. Uh, it, it, the funny thing is when you when you see the news today and you watch riots, you watch Black Lives Matter and you watch all the riots that went on regarding, you know, the, the police brutality. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing that you hear people say is you hear the white race talk about how the blacks are rioting. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's the black people are doing this. <laughs> well, the things we're talking about, we're talking about riots, yeah. that white people were the instigators mm -hmm. and black people were the victims. Right. right. And if you actually if you go on Google right now and type in all of the riots or massacres that happened in the United States, you're going to get a list of about 200, 300. And when you click on that, you'll realize black people were the victims of most of them. Absolutely. And that white people were the uh, agitators and instigators right. of, of most of those. We, we learned how to riot from them. Absolutely. Yeah. They taught us the right way to right. do it. Because it worked. Because it worked. <laughs> so, Start, starting with yeah. Tulsa. Absolutely. Um I'm going to start specifically with someone um, that I read about. And again, a lot of this information was hard to look up. We talked about it. It was difficult to look up because when you look up these these towns or these settlements or these places, um, you mostly only got information about the massacres uh, right. or the riots. Uh, they very they spoke very briefly about the. What, what was going on in the town before or after or right. afterwards. That's um, right. Because we, we call it Black Wall Street for those that. Right. We call it Black Wall Street for a reason. And they don't really talk about that. They yeah. talk about the massacre, not why it's called Black Wall right. Street. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to start with a, a woman by the name of uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, there's actually information that she was actually born right here in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia. Um and where she ended up moving with her family to, um, I think it's uh, like a New England, Massachusetts, something like that. But she actually, after they got their freedom from slavery, she was actually supposed to go to school 
um, in this town in New England and work for and live with this Quaker family and actually was supposed to go to school. Mm -hmm. But when she went, the, 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 the lady that she worked for, the Quaker actually put her in the store to work in the store instead of putting her in school. And working in the, the store, she learned how to manage money. So she didn't really learn the things in school, but she learned finances. She learned how to manage money by working in this store. And afterwards, she moves to Boston, where she meets her, her husband, who actually owned a, a great significant of land in West Virginia. And in West Virginia, he actually bought slaves and freed them and had him work his land and paid them. So after he dies, he leaves the, the estate to her. And she sells the estate for what would be equivalent today of $1.8 million. And with that $1.8 million, she moves to San Francisco during the gold rush. And during the gold rush, she actually was a money lender. So she would lend people money and charge them 10% each month to where her profits was doubling every month and profiting uh, and doubling every year. She would also take gold, send it down to Panama and get silver back instead and sell silver at a high price and double her profits from there to the point where she was making um, a huge amount of money. And what she actually did with the money was, if you know about John Brown, John Brown, the abolitionist who uh, was fighting for, um, for the freedom of, of Africans, was leading a rebellion in Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, not Kansas, Kansas and Nebraska, because they wanted Nebraska and Kansas to not be a slave state. So she actually donated what would be equivalent of one point four million dollars to John Brown to try to make this happen. But when John Brown is assassinated, she loses that a million dollars. But she goes back to San Francisco, works for a lady as like the help making what would be equivalent about five thousand dollars a month. And she took that money began a money lending stuff again, making profits to the point where she was making a huge amount of money. Not only that, there were uh, segregation was beginning to happen on trains. So she would get on a train knowing they was going to kick her off and follow file a lawsuit because she had the money to pay high pay lawyers. So most of the time they settled before they even got to court. So she was getting paid from the lawsuits. So she buys a, she ends up buying a, um, a mansion. Um, and when she buys this mansion, she invites people like politicians, lawmakers, um, industrialists to live there and charge them rent to live there. So she was basically profiting almost $300,000 per year by wow. renting out these rooms in her mansion. And they had five course meals. Um, she would, she also had a laundry room to where she would charge them laundry. So to let's say to uh, wash 12 shirts, it would cost about $136 today. So she was wow. making $80,000 a year just off the laundry. <laughs> so you're talking about a woman who was, um, who had power and connections. She also was very good friends with the, the governor of, uh, of San Francisco. So she was a woman with power and a woman with money and a woman with political connections. Wow. So she actually built a second mansion to where she would bring in blacks that were migrating during the gold rush and she would train them on how to do certain jobs. She would train them how to talk, train them how to finance money so they can go elsewhere and capitalize off of opportunity. That's right. And she is called the mother of California and was ended up, I think when she died, she was worth almost about $4.5 million wow. um, after her death. And she, um, 
she is responsible for a lot of those places like Oakland and uh, that has predominantly black neighborhoods right. that, that were flourishing at one time to make money because of this lady named Mary uh, Ellen Pleasant. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you talk, so again, when we talk about these things, the word real estate is going to come up a lot. We're talking about, we talking about millionaires and black millionaires. That's right. What you got? <laughs> I'm going to start, um, I'm going to even go earlier than that. I'm going to go 1842. Tobacconist. Mm -hmm. um, it was a young enslaved man named Lunsford Lane mm -hmm. who decided, now before I tell the story, I'm going to back up a second. The one thing you were heard on a, a couple of episodes is that black people are resilient. We're also hustlers. <laughs> okay. We can hustle. Okay. We survive. survive. So survivalists who hustle, who have craft, who have understanding of how to make money. Um, and a lot of opportunities presented themselves for enslaved and free African-Americans early on. And they would simply identify an area that they can make money, even if it was against the rules because they were still slaves. Mm -hmm. And tobacco, since we were picking it, mm -hmm. there came opportunities for them to hustle the sale of that tobacco. And this guy, Lunsford Lane, Lane did that and bought his freedom with that money and then went on to own his own tobacco farm. Spell that for me. Uh, L-U-N-S-F-O-R-D Lane, L-A-N-E. Everybody got that. Make sure you you search that. Check that out. About that. That's huge. That is. And I'm going to go ahead and throw one more while we're right here. Shoemaker. Okay. It was a shoemaker. His name was William B. J. Brown. Was born into uh, a free black family in Rhode Island. Um, and of course... For those that watch this podcast, know we talk about the Northeast a lot. Mm -hmm. Very prejudiced, mm -hmm. um, even during that time. But through his resilience and his hustle mentality, um, he was able to create his own business, became a store clerk and apprentice as a shoemaker, mm -hmm. which was something that blacks had always We're done. done right. But we did not own our own facilities to do it. He was one of the first ones to do that. Absolutely. That's dope. That's dope. What'd you say his name was again? His name was William J. Brown. William J. Brown. And that was 1883. Mm. What you got, Kwan? Oh, no, no. You got one? I, I got another one. Oh, you got, got Are oh, you saving it for the places? Yeah. Okay, I, got I got you. I got you. I, I'm, I'm going to um, go Barbara, only because we talk about Cheney a lot. Okay. Um, after being emancipated uh, in 1820, William Johnson became a successful black business owner in mm -hmm. Mississippi, operating a barbershop and loaning money and acquiring real estate. Mm -hmm. Two things that he just mentioned. Yeah. Also, when we talk about loaning money, we want to talk about really quick what black people would loan money for. And this is huge. And this goes all the way back to the early 1900s, even a little bit into the late 1800s. Bond. So when black people got arrested and they got a bond, they had no money. Yeah. So you would have these free blacks that we now call bondsmen. Yeah. Would go and bond these folks out of, out of jail. 
And they even got to the point where they would pay police officers or law enforcement to let them know when somebody was arrested so they could go bond them out. So they, the officer came to them and said, hey, I got Leon Jeffries again down here at the jail. They would pay the officer for letting them know. And then they would go down and bond Leon out of jail. Mm -hmm. So huge business. That's huge. Dope. That's dope. Speaking of barbers, Alonzo Herndon. Alonzo Herndon was a uh, slave, a former slave out of Georgia. A former enslaved African out of Georgia. I'm sorry, I'm working on that terminology. I don't want to say slave. Slave is a noun that describes somebody. That's right. We, That's right. We weren't slaves. We were enslaved. enslaved. So I have to clear that up every time I say that wrong. Um, but at the age of 20, he ends up opening up a barbershop in Georgia. And he actually, his business actually thrived to where he moves to Atlanta, Georgia, and opens up three barbershops where he uh, cuts the hair of lawyers, judges, politicians, and was making a significant amount of money. And then he actually invested in the real estate. He bought homes in Atlanta, and then he went and bought homes in Florida and rented them out. And he was gaining profit from that. And then after he does that, he takes on a failing insurance company. And he calls this insurance company Atlantic, um, what is it? Atlanta Life Insurance. And Within the first year, he turns over like $40,000 profit from it. And he starts to build in what is now considered uh, the Auburn District. If you know the Auburn District in, in Atlanta is, is huge because it's, um, I think Booker T. Washington called it the richest Negro street in the world. That's right. Uh, the rise of Auburn Avenue um, actually came after the Atlanta race riots where black people went over there and they just started working on their own things. Um, but they had banks, they had uh, insurance companies, they had their own newspaper, um, and then churches where Martin Luther King was born. So they actually, the place that they actually settled in is monumental in the place that we call Atlanta today because uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference actually set up shop right there on that avenue. So when you think about Auburn District, you're thinking about Alonzo Herndon, who used this profit from the insurance company to build that street That's up. Right. Um, Memphis, Tennessee, another one of those southern cities yes, I'm not sir. a fan of. Yeah. But um, Robert Reed Church. There we go. Uh, became the first South's first black millionaire. Yeah. And once again, did it using real estate. Yes, he did. And here's here's the other thing. He, we talk about the resilience and we talk about uh, the hustle, but we also have to talk about the level of intelligence. Yeah. So Memphis became depopulated after the yellow fever epidemic. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't remember that. Mm -hmm. But Robert Reed Church took advantage of that and went in and said, hey, ain't nobody here. I ought to be able to buy this property for little or nothing. Yes, and that's what he did. Yeah. And, and as knowing that once a brother buy the property, they coming. Yeah. Yeah. They coming. And, and they came. They came in droves. And uh, as I said, became the first, the South's first black mil uh, bil millionaire. I'm, uh, I'm going to stay with him. Okay. I'm stay with him. Um, I sent you guys a screenshot earlier because I was reading about him and his mother was actually born in Lynchburg, Virginia. That's right. On a plantation. That's so right. he was actually mixed. Uh, his father was um, a slave master and they actually called him his mother, his um, the concubine. That's right. But he, he wasn't exactly treated like a slave, but he wasn't treated like his son either. So after his mother dies, um, his mother made 
the father promised to free him, but he didn't. He ex instead, he had him work on his steamboat. So when he works on his steamboat, he learns um, a lot. And during the Civil War, the Confederates take over the steamboat to where during one of the battles, he actually jumps in the water and swims into what we call Memphis today. That's right. And where he actually gained his freedom from. But after he gains his freedom, he ends up marrying a woman who actually owns her own wig shop. And she's actually doing pretty good to where she funds him money to start his own billard hall, That's right. his own billard bar or whatever. And he does it, but the state of Memphis denies him a license, but he opens it up anyway. And he's actually arrested for it. And he beats it because the Civil Rights Act that we talked about on this podcast was passed not long after that. That's so right. they said that he shouldn't have even been denied uh, a license. So it got thrown out. This sparked, along with a black man dating a white woman, the race riots that happened in Memphis. That's right. And in the race riots, they actually shoot him in the head and burn his uh, hall down. That's right. So after they do that, the race riots was the first time people migrated out of Memphis. So what he do? The plouses that they burned down, he bought them. He bought them. <laughs> he bought them. He built this billard hall back up. Like it was like three three stories to where the first story was the bar. Like another room was a barber shop. Um, another room was a gambling spot. So he built up his own hall plus the real estate on on that um, avenue. And um, again, like you said, the yellow fever breaks out and people leave again. He actually funded for most of those people to leave, get That's this, right. Tulsa, Oklahoma. He Absolutely. funded for them to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you're talking about probably about $1.4 million that he funded for the, to send those people to Oklahoma, but he ends up buying real estate and he goes to um, the state, I mean, the, the, the city of Memphis and says, you're gonna rebuild and they had to give bonds out. So that's right. He lended the money so they can build the real estate in Memphis of what we call Bill Street today, B-E-A-L-E, -E, um, Bill Street, which is predominantly known uh, for the people who watch shows like P-Valley and that's stuff right. like that. That's right. Okay. <laughs> so when, when you look at what they was doing and when you look at the, the musicians that came through Memphis that did jazz and blues. So Memphis was known or Bill Street was known for being the a uh, professional place during the day where you can see the banks and the insurance companies and all of the places that people like church built. And he also helped build the nightlife. That's so right. When the night, the gambling the spots, trip. right? That's right. He also was actually friends who he meets on the steamboat that he worked on his father by a guy by the name of Blanche Bruce. Blanche Bruce was uh, a former slave out of Mississippi who ended up getting some sharecropping land thanks to the Freedom Bureau's act. Mm -hmm. He gets some sharecropping land to where he becomes a millionaire. And then he actually wanted to run for a Senate in Mississippi, which church funded and campaign helped this campaign right there in that Billard Hall to allow him to be um, the uh, senator of uh, Mississippi. His son, um uh, Robert Reed Church Jr. Yes. was a became a major politician in Memphis. Um, you guys may have even heard of him. He's done wonderful things for Memphis, Tennessee, Absolutely. as 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 many wonderful things as can be done <laughs> in, <laughs> in in that in that state. But uh, obviously, those two, along with Blanche, did some wonderful things right. for the South and for the people. Who don't uh, in that in that race riot, forty six blacks were killed, five churches burned, and one point six million dollars in property damage. Um, uh, that was, that was, uh, Memphis. Um, 
He also, Robert Church, also, he was criticized at first by Ida B. Wells. Right. Because right. Um, he was making all his money, but he wasn't giving it back to the people So she, or helping any causes. So she called him out on it. But when Ida B. Wells goes to California to teach, she realized she didn't like it. He actually sent her a check for her to come back home because she had no money to come back home. And then after that, she actually became friends with him where he starts the... Um, the Memphis Rifles uh, militia right there in Memphis to go against the anti-prong, the anti-lynching uh, things that Ida B. Wells and Frederick Douglass were doing. Um, and in that freedom, that Memphis militia, a guy by the last name of Jackson who goes to Tulsa, Oklahoma, he actually becomes a deputy in Tulsa, Oklahoma of whites and blacks until they sep- they, the separation and segregation happened. Mm-hmm. He just became the... Uh, the militia. And actually, when you read about the Tulsa massacre, he's one of the first people to show up at the uh, jail site with a gun. Uh, that Jackson guy that came from Memphis that was funded to go to Oklahoma by Mr. Church. So when we talk about Robert Church, monumental. Absolutely. Come on, what you got? What you got? Well, he, he waiting on the, the town when we get into the oh, town. Oh, okay. You want to get to the town. Um, Hold on, Pop. We'll, go, we're going okay. to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back again. Subscribe on the YouTube channel, Mighty Motivation Network on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, Mighty Motivation Network on YouTube. Uh, also finish, uh, visit Cool Breeze Kicks on Facebook, uh, CB underscore kicks with a Z on Instagram for all your latest sneakers. Uh, we're going to continue to move forward. Pops, go ahead. Before we start naming some more people, I want to always like to make the association of how does how do the things we talk about apply to you today? Right. And I think it's time that we 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 mention some of these things. So I'm going to give you some numbers real quick. According to the most recent Census Bureau data available, black people comprise approximately 14.2 percent of the U.S. population. But black businesses comprise only 2.2% of the nation's 5.7 million employer businesses. Wow. That's so when we talk about when we talk about uh, segregation, Mm -hmm. we talked about segregation being done in many forms and fashions. But the biggest form of segregation is when you have a community that's predominantly black. But they control nothing about that community. They don't control the businesses. They don't own any of the homes that generates revenue or mortgages. And they don't con- they don't own any of the 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 uh, the job opportunities, mm-hmm. employment, financial, economical development. None of that or politics. They don't have any involvement whatsoever. They just live there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Denzel Washington say, well, you just live here. You right. know, they just live there. That's all they do is live there um, in order to achieve full uh, uh, integration. You have to have black people take on the roles and responsibilities that are occupied by white America. So you have to have them start owning their own properties. Mm -hmm. You have to have them owning their own companies and you have to have them in politics and law enforcement. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you get true integration Mm -hmm. and equality. Mm -hmm. Let's mention that too. So you cannot expect 
for America to treat you equally when you have nothing vested yeah. in, in what we're talking about now, which is 5.7 million employer businesses. Right. You What are you investing in that right. other than you shop here? Right. Okay. So you want to have a conversation, bring something to the table. Mm -hmm. We need to increase those numbers. Mm -hmm. Now I can say that all day long. I can say right now, I am not a business owner. Mm -hmm. I am not an entrepreneur when it comes to that. I've tried. Mm -hmm. My problem is I have no, no way of being able to charge people. Right. I like to give it away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for those that don't know, I love the drawer. I love to, to paint. And I sometimes do work for people that I end up giving it to them. Yeah. It means more to them than it does me. Right. I can't charge them for it. Right. I can't run a business because I can't eat. So for those that, that, that are entrepreneurs and do own their own businesses and they can step out there and they have no problem charging people mm -hmm. for what they do and they should. Mm -hmm. We need more people like that. Right. I'm not one of those people. I can admit that I'm right. not one of those people. I've tried, mm -hmm. but I would like to see more people own their own businesses, be entrepreneurs, because in order for us to get real equality, we have to come to the table, all tables. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're not at all tables. Right. We need to get at all tables. Absolutely. Um, I, again, I'm not a business owner either. Um, again, I like to give stuff away. I hate charging people anything, but that don't lead to the important people that have to do that. that That's right. You're, you, you are, you're in a position to not only help yourself, but you're in a position to help others. If you own your own business, that's right. I don't even care if you if you working from home and you're doing it. If you're just starting up, uh, you just have a website. You're in a position to help others, mm -hmm. and when you are a, you're in that type of position, you shouldn't take it for granted. Because um, there are so many people. When you look at, and I have, when you look at a lot of uh, white companies, you know, you go to them, they'll donate money without people even asking. Mm -hmm. Because they know the money is going back to the system. We have to have, well, we had our own system of doing that. When you look at Black Wall Street, that's what made Black Wall Street so good is because there's rumors that the money turned over 27 times before it left Greenwood. That's right. So that means if you spend your dollar with me, I'm going to spend my dollar with him. I'm going to spend that dollar with that's him. Right. And we continue to rotate the money with him. black right. dollars. And that's the important thing, because when you do that, you can have economic growth. You can have political growth. And you can have next generation growth. Because right. you can now teach the next generation money management and you can put them in positions to where they don't need student loans. You can put them in positions where they may not even need a bank loan. That's right. You can put them in positions to where they never have to owe nobody because you've invested in them and now they can invest in themselves and the thing goes round, 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 and, round. And, round. And, and as you say, you get that, you get that economical growth and with that, you get the power. You get some power that's not afforded to you without that, which means when white America see you thriving and they, you're making money, they're trying to figure out how can we be a part of that? Right. We have something that you want. You have something that we want. Let's come to that table mm -hmm. and talk about it. Without that, there's no conversation. Right. So that economic gro economical growth that you talked about is how you get expansion. Right. It's how you get others involved and how you get white America and black America to join forces. Right. Because if you're not bringing something to the table that's going to benefit them, they're not listening. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So you have to have that. And in a lot of cases, we're developing that now. Right. Think about it. They developed 
this back in the, in 1920 with Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, yeah, when you when you think about it, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois actually was bringing these type of people together. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a lot more collaboration. Absolutely. A lot of more putting money together, Absolutely. right? So what W.E.B. Du Bois wanted to do, he wanted to bring people like uh, Robert Church and all of these people together and say, hey, let's put the money together. And they were even talking about buying the whole state of Oklahoma. That's right. Let, let's just make it a black state. Let's make uh, Nebraska um, a, a black state. How about that? So when you talk about what they were trying to do with the money and what they were able to do is whenever they would join money together and partner up. So when you think about the black community, when we are able to put our money together, we can have that political that political change. Robert Church that we just talked about helped fund the money to get William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt elected. That's right. So what, what, why can't we get change to happen? It's because we don't have a check for politicians. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When LGBTQ community, they can get laws passed because they put their money together and say, hey, we'll vote for you. Here's a check. Don't forget about us. White America gets things done. They put their money together. Hey, when we vote for you, here's a check. Don't forget about us. That's Black right. people just vote. We don't put our money together and say, don't forget about us. That's why we don't get things passed for Blacks. They promise us stuff, but we don't have a check for politicians. We know the game is dirty, but we're not willing to play the game. And the one way to play the game is by having a check to say, hey, we giving you money? Now do something for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you, you know, even if you're dealing with somebody, if you give, some, if you let somebody borrow money, mm-hmm. That means you're in control. Right. Because now you can say, I gave you money. If you ain't got the money to pay me back, now whatever I need as a favor, you got. Right. That's right. That's how politics work. Yeah, that, that concept you were talking about, we call it recycled black dollars, but actually it was called double duty dollars <laughs> is what they used to call it in the 1900s is that where you have uh, black spending money with black owned businesses mm-hmm. and then that money remaining within those black communities and white America wanted a part. They wanted, how can we get down? How can we get into that? Uh, uh, so that their money can trickle over on the other side of the tracks. Right. As, as, you, and as you say, when you think about, especially South, they don't sell the, the, um, the phrase that is used is don't spend your money where you can't shop or work. That's right. That was, that was, that's a phrase now, but that was the concept then. That's right. Because remember, if like the, like the movie life, we don't even want your money. We don't even want your money. We don't even come in here. You can so what they did was, miles down the yeah, street, you didn't you know? go across the train tracks and spend your money. That's right. You didn't go in those restaurants and eat. They didn't want you there. So mm-hmm. what did you do? You went to the black restaurants. You went to the black insurance companies. You put your money in the black banks. That's right. So the money began to grow. That's why you see a lot of the towns that we're talking about was either down south or places where they weren't allowed to go outside of that neighborhood Absolutely. to spend their money. So that phrase is coined now because we've seen it successful back then. Don't spend your money of places that will not hire you when you talk about those Gucci, Louis Prada type of places or that will not invest that money that you just gave them back into your community. Absolutely. I was reading something on the internet and it was talking about how when integration happened, it messed it up for black dollars. Yeah. Because black people who wasn't allowed in these places now started going to these restaurants, even if they had to go to the back door, they was going because they were allowed to go. So now they were no longer spending their money at the mom and pops owned by black people they were spending it at restaurants and mom and pop stores that yeah. were owned by 
white people because now they were allowed to go. Well, you know, Pops talk about this all the time when it comes to voting districts, but it also happened with business is once integration happened, zoning happened. Mm. That's right. So when zoning happened, a lot of those black businesses had to either sell or go out of business. That's right. So a lot of those black businesses turned in their business or joined with a white business underneath them to where they didn't own these businesses anymore. That's right. So we kind of gave up our um, wealth just to be integrated. Also, you and I'll put it in real terms for you. You guys remember when there used to be an A&N in Bedford? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Army Navy store, right? Mm-hmm. That sold sneakers. You could get you could get all the all the shoes you could get at Foot Lock and Foot Action. You mm-hmm. could get at A&N. Cheaper. And probably cheaper. And I remember that most people didn't go there. They went to the mall. Right. You know, it became the shopping experience because yeah. it allows me to go somewhere else outside of my own area and, and participate in those shopping activities. Yeah. So you felt that level of prestige, like you 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 have the power to do this. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, poor AN suffered. Right. Yeah. And I know AN wasn't a black owned store, but the, the concept is the same is that the more freedoms we got, mm-hmm. the less we 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 did those things that we should have been doing, like investing in those black businesses. See, we got comfortable. Yeah. We we got comfortable. Yeah. We act like we made it. You we know, we no longer what, what had said, you overcame and didn't tell us. Yeah. You know, we didn't overcome yet. We, lost we the thought ambition. we did. Lost we, we lost it. You know, and that's what happened. So when that happens, and then didn't survive. Neither did a lot of those black owned businesses back in the 60s and the 70s. They didn't survive when you started integrating and you had the power to go eat at these other places or shop at these other places. Right. So when we talk about why integration happened you think you think this is a huge reason why because places like tulsa oklahoma places like um rosewood places that we're going to get into a little bit later were functioning so well that white america didn't expect that so integration was the only way to kill that dream i i think it was part of the the the, the problem i also think that if you look at integration and why it became necessary is because you ended up with a lot more poor white people than you thought you were going to have too. Right. So they had to have somewhere to go too. So obviously at, at most points you couldn't just kick out all the black people and let the poor white people go live there. Right. So they got cast out too. Yeah. So integration started happening with poor white people and blacks first. Mm-hmm. That's the first line of integration. We're just now getting to the integration where the black people could go buy houses in the gated community. Right. Right. We're just getting to that point and we went well beyond or where we thought we were going to be years ago but integration happened for a lot of reasons but obviously monetary was the big thing we said in the very beginning if you want to hurt america you got to do it in the pockets mm-hmm. and and obviously black owned businesses was hurting white america so we we were talking about it before we started this podcast everything that i read about what happened in tulsa leads me to believe that it had nothing to do with the black guy making a sexual advance to the white lady on the elevator. It had nothing to do with that. It was an excuse. It was an excuse because if you think about it, they did not only attack the black civilians, they attacked the black businesses. What was that all about? Hurt them in the pocket. We want to get rid of this town. We want to get rid of Black Wall Street. You guys are making too much money. You have too much power. We talked about the power that they had. They had too much power. They toted guns. They had their own law enforcement. They couldn't have, white America couldn't have that. And this was an opportunity for them to go in and destroy it. And that's what they did. I mean, because 
one of the people that was, I think they said they was five years old when this was happening. She said, you could hear the planes dropping bombs. Dropping bombs, on, that's right. On the building. Dropping those turpentine uh, uh, um, rag rag bombs. And I also read uh, that it, it started because when they stormed, um, wherever they stormed that, when the black people went downtown because they was going to lynch the guy. Yeah, that, they were trying to get him out of jail and they were trying to stop them from yeah, lynching that That's it, right. It, it all started because... A white guy tried to take the gun out of a black man's hand. Well, th that that is the that is the thing. But right. we, we can we can always go back earlier than that. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about this earlier. What happens in Greenwood is, but let's let's just look at it from a historical standpoint. Blacks ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, due to um, the Trail of Tears. So the Trail of Tears, they're in, they're they're enslaved with the Native Americans. So they travel with them on the Trail of Tears. After this happens, um, when the territory opens up, they want to create this this land, and they they the Native Americans are forced to let go of their slaves and give them rights to the uh, tribe or whatever. And with this, they got free land. So there was a, a race to where you would, they, they, they let off the gun and you was to go find some land. Wherever you laid your stake at, where's your always. land? That's right. Um, and the girly was one of the people who got some land. There were a lot of other black towns that also incorporated. Uh, and what ended up happening was this was a territory where black people were thriving, Native Americans were thriving, but they messed around and found oil. They found oil in Oklahoma. And that's when America wanted to say, we want to make this a state or it's going to be a, or it's going to be a territory forever. And they decided to make it a state. And when they made it the state, that's when the racism come in. That's when the deseg that's when the segregation come in. So basically when the South came up in the Oklahoma, they pushed these blacks with their racism, with their lynching and their, their ways, pushed them into what they call Northern Tulsa and Gurley moves to uh, this area where he opens up his grocery store and calls it Greenwood. And when he opens up Greenwood, he um he goes with uh he opens up um homes and and hotels along with the guy by the name of um uh, what is his name uh John the Baptist Stratford John the Baptist Stratford where they both just built on these things doctors' office and they they recruited doctors dentists to come in opening up saloons and gambling spots, funeral homes, and all these other places. And blacks were doing well. And like I told Dad earlier, when we were talking off air is, one of the key things that happened is, when white people would go over to Greenwood, because again, they would go over to Greenwood to gamble, gamble. and that's with black women, because that's what they love. And whenever they would get into situations with black people, there would be six or seven black people to intervene because every black man carried a gun in Greenwood. So whenever there was a situation, black man had a gun. They, it was even thoughts of um, uh, stories of them shooting white people in Greenwood and telling them going back across the tracks. That's right. Um, and then what ended up happening was um, two black guys that worked across the train tracks for some white folks, and they were accused of killing a guy. And when they put him in jail, the, the community of Greenwood with their guns march over to the whites and say, we demand that they be free. And when the white people seen it, they said they got way too much power, way too much power, but they knew they couldn't go in there without a large number of people willing to go in. So when that situation happened with the girl and the guy, 
that's when they was like, because the newspaper put out it was an assault or rape. That's right. Because they actually questioned him that the, when the incident happened and sent him home because they thought it was just a misunderstanding. The newspaper made it seem like this black guy assaulted a white woman. That's right. Which made it seem like he molested her or groped her and Something. all this other That's stuff. right. So the white community was outraged by that and were massive of all 500 to 600 of them were out there demanding that he be lynched. That's right. They, they, they also said that, and I don't know if it's true, but they said that the white girl didn't cooperate. She didn't. And there's also rumors from the guy's grandmother that they were lovers and that they rent, they were left out. Right. Of, they left town together. That's right. That's they right. They said on the elevator, they was actually kissing. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. And love. If you put it in perspective, one, you can't have planes ready to drop these turpentine bombs on the spare of a dime, right. right? They just had them ready, right? right? They didn't have them ready. And you didn't just have a plan on going to attack neighbors and businesses on the spare of the moment. Mm -hmm. You didn't just come up with that. This was orchestrated. This was planned. This was something that they wanted to do. They just needed a reason to do it. Right? Yeah. So it was something that had been building up for a long time. Absolutely. You see that um, whenever you begin to grow wealth. But again, um, that was at the end of Tulsa, Oklahoma. They rebuilt it and right. it was thriving again. At That's that right. Point. So, um, resilient. Yeah, absolutely. Resilient. Um, I'm going to bring up, uh, I'm going to bring up a female because they did a documentary on, maybe they did a, a, a show on Netflix. And I don't think she got her just due from this show. Um, Annie Malone, uh, was a black woman, uh, that would do hair. And during this time period, when it came to black women's hair, a lot of them, their hair couldn't grow because in slavery, they had to wrap up their hair all the time. Um, and then they also wanted their hair to look like white women's. So they would get these products that had sulfur in them and it would, it would damage their scalp pretty bad. Um, so Anna Malone, at a teenage years, um, had to stop going to school because she had this medical condition where she uh, was um, having like seizures or something like that to where she couldn't go to school. But so she was doing hair. And one of her clients come in to get her hair done and her hair, she needed something for her hair growth. So Anne Malone goes to this herbalist and gets some herbs, put them together, put it in the lady's hair and seeing that that girl, the lady's hair started to grow after a while. So she gets her mother to order her some chemistry books, some biology books. She begins to read about different uh, things to put in to create a product. And she did it, put some herbs together, put some products together put it into a cat's hair and seeing that the cat's hair was starting to grow. So she decided to use it on her clients and it worked on the clients to the point by the time she got aged to the age of 30, she had over 200 clients critiquing her product for 10 years. So after she got successful, she moved her business to uh, Brooklyn, Illinois. So when she was going door to door to people telling them about her products and how she's a stylist and she can get their hair looking, looking good. And she actually rented out a horse and buggy and would go around with a brochure teaching black women about hair and how to get their hair to grow. And she ended up uh, moving to St. Louis for the to try to be on the platform for the World Fair that was going to be happening in 1903. And when she goes out there, she's again, she's booming with her with her hair products and she meets a woman and a woman starts to sell for her. And this woman became Madam C.J. Walker from the, the series, if you if you mm -hmm. watch the Madam C.J. Walker. And Madam C.J. Walker actually goes to Colorado and sells her products 
what she does well to the point where she was like, well, this product ain't trademarked, so I'll just make my own product and sell it. Mm. And that's what she did. And she made, she became one of the first black self-sufficient uh, millionaires. But that didn't stop uh, Ann Malone from doing her own thing. So she opened up her own college, Poro College, college. in right. St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And she began to teach other people how to, how to uh, do hair. She also had hair salons set up in 46 states mm -hmm. with over 3,000 employees pulling in about $8 million a year. And that was in 19, by the 1950s. Absolutely. Yeah. So Madam C.J. Walker became a millionaire, but also so did her mentor that they call her, and Ann Malone. And she also helped build up that area of St. Louis that is called The Ville, um, where The Ville is, uh, they had Poro College, of course. They also had a place called Homer G. Phillips Hospital that was home for black doctors or black nurses to come in and train and became one of the most successful hospitals in the world. Um, it developed black doctors, entrepreneurs, educators, and entertainers. And Malone's manufacturing company, company that she invested in, employed over 200 women and allowed them to own homes in the Ville. So when you talk about Ann Malone, you're talking about a millionaire that gave back to the St. Louis community to build up that black community. That's right. And she didn't get, I don't think she got her just due in that Netflix series because they even changed her name. Um, it wasn't, her name wasn't even Am Malone in there. But Madam C.J. Walker was a millionaire. She done great things too, but you can't forget about Am Malone. Annie Malone. Yeah. You, you know, um, John Johnson was the founder of Johnson Publishing Company in uh, 1942. Um, became a millionaire. Uh, became the first African American to appear on the Forbes 400. Mm. Um, with the likes of Ebony Jet Magazine. That was before you guys' time, but <laughs> I used to love to read Ebony and Jet Magazine when I was a kid. Um, so <clears throat> Johnson and uh, uh, John Johnson used to stand out to me, and a lot of people get him confused with the start, the owner of Johnson and Johnson, not that Johnson. Um, and I, we'll talk about his name's Robert Johnson. We'll get to him in a little bit, but uh, John Johnson one of the first blacks for me uh, to see that that visual mm -hmm. of being a successful entrepreneur, um, black American. One thousand percent. One thousand percent. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back again. Subscribe on the YouTube channel, Mighty Motivation <laughs> Network. Subscribe on the YouTube channel, Mighty Motivation Network. Um, we're going to continue on. Um, Shaquan, I'll let you go. Uh, with one of the towns. What you mean? Whatever you got. I'll let you go however, however you feel. Uh, I do want to read a quote. Um, as Black Wall Street was burning down, um, they call it the city that burned for 18 hours of men, of men fleeing for their lives. Um, I want to read a quote. It's by, uh, so in the midst of you know, everything going on, the bombing, the killing. Uh, this guy said that, you know, his granddad said that, you know, they was downtown, whatever happened, happened. And they get they need to get out of town. Mm -hmm. So they all got in the car and they and they driving out of um, Greenwood. And so the white guy stops him and asks him, where are you going, nigga? 
And my and he said, my granddaddy said, we're going out of town. And the man said, not today, you're not, and shot him in the head. Mm. Uh, that that quote is by Edward Lett. He was five years old at the time. Wow. Again, when we go back in history, it's, it's, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Um, I'm going to talk about a place I just recently learned about. Um, Seneca Village. Seneca Village, 1825. Epiphany Davis, Andrew Williams became uh, African-Americans that own land in that area. Now, Seneca Village is modern day Central Park. So in, in Manhattan. Um, so they bought land and then the AME Church also bought plots of land um, there as well. To the point where the, the town had three churches and a school. And it was a place where African-Americans can kind of escape the racism that was happening around in Manhattan. Um, what, was, actually, what was the name of that? Seneca Village. S-E-N. Well, the name of the company or the church you said. Uh, AME. Most of when you talk about black churches, you go, you go talk about the first AME church right. is, okay. a, is a common name. Um, but it was important because when you own property, because over 50 homes were owned in Seneca Village by black people. And this is important for the time because if you owned your own real estate, you could vote. That's right. So uh, a lot of these people who own land right there in Seneca Village, they uh they took about 10% of the black votes that was happening all in, in New York, right there in Seneca Village. Um, but they also had a water source from the the the, the Hudson River to where they, they planted gardens, they raised livestock. Um they also uh they developed a lot of things for 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 kids to where they they operated and for to teach them how to read but they were forced to leave that area when they was wanted to build uh central park but seneca village um uh, was like a safe haven mm -hmm. for 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 african americans after slavery um i probably should have mentioned this guy first if if you google right now uh first black business owners this guy will probably be first on the list or one of the first on the list. Charles Spaulding, mm. um, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company out of Durham, North Carolina, yep. founded in 1898, um, was the nation's largest black owned business. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, he had a unique had a unique business strategy. Uh, sales, the salesman would collect small premiums of about 10 cents every week from its, its uh, um, clients and they would do it weekly. So your insurance, you only paid it on a weekly basis. And if you died, then the salesman would immediately arrange payment for about $100 for the funeral. Mm -hmm. um, and that became so prominent because people didn't have those monthly payments. Because if you think about during that time, there was a chance that you may work this week, but not next week. So it basically was a week to week thing. Um, and this work by 1970, they grossed more than $120 million for 150,000 race funerals each year, which is, which is huge. Wow. So he also, uh, well, that helped, that church camp helped, helped build uh, Haiti District in Durham. Absolutely. Uh, so Haiti District was one of the first self-sufficient black towns. Mm -hmm. um, um, you got, what you got? Uh, staying in Greenwood, um, Eaton Family Barbershop. Um, it, 
it's significant because when everything was going on, um, this was one of the one of the places that they did not burn down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also led to them starting a civil rights movement, and this was the hub for it. Mm-hmm. And today it's still open, but it's not a barbershop anymore. It is uh it's called the Black Community Radio, where teenagers of the Eaton family have their own radio show and they talk about all the black things that's going on in the world. Absolutely. I'm going to go um, C.R. Patterson and Sons Company. Mm, yes, sir. Uh, after escaping slavery in 1861, Charles Richard Patterson were going to organize one of the most successful carriage building firms mm-hmm. in 1893. The firm assembled 28 types of horse-drawn carriages and employed roughly 10 to 15 people of color. When Charles died in 1910, his son Frederick founded the first African-American car manufacturing company, a Greenfield Patterson car, which remained active until 1939. Yep. C.R. Patterson. C.R. Patterson. Um, I'm going with uh, Brooklyn, baby, (laughs) Bed-Stein. Once was Wicksville, New York. Uh, After New York abolished slavery, James Weeks purchased a large large amount of land in Bed-Stuy from another black man, actually. Um, and it was actually considered the second largest free black community um, before the Civil War. Um, but the, it was also, again, a safe haven for blacks uh, that was leaving the South from uh, slavery. Uh, they had schools, churches, homes for the elderly, orphanages. Um, Bed-Stuy is actually called in New York like the, the, the place of churches. Uh, a lot of those churches are still standing there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it also owned, I, I actually like the fact that it had its own newspaper. And in the newspaper, it had lessons on how to read for the people who were uh, enslaved at one time that didn't know how to read. So if you got the paper, it would teach you how to read so you could read that paper, right? Uh, it also was the, the, the place where the first African civilization society happened, which was an organization... Um, trying to establish a colony for free blacks in Liberia. Uh, so Weeksville was, was, was head, of the, head of the cause when you talk about the Back to Africa movements and was the golden age of black nationalism. So right there in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, was Weeksville, New York. That's right. Um, I'm going to stay in Greenwood. I actually want to read a quote before I get into something. Uh, I don't know how we built back so quick, Quick might have been eight to nine years, but then we built it all back really better than in, she said it's better today than it than it ever was at the mm. time um, when they burned down Black Wall Street and they built it back up. Uh, in the 1940s, it was over 200 Black-owned operating businesses in Greenwood. Um, and some of those businesses, I just, I, I picked a few because it was over 300. So, uh Amic Brick Company, Amos T. Hall Law Office, Antler Shoe Rebuilders, Archer Apartments, Big Ben's Taylor Shop, Brown Hotel. It was about five doctor's offices, um, Dreamland Theater, uh, Eaton Family Barbershop, which I mentioned earlier, Foster's Drug Store, Frank Berry's Record Shop, and many more tailor shops. Mm. Yeah. The tailor shop is true because they, they used to walk around in them nice fancy suits. Yeah. That's right. Nice, That's fancy right. Suit. 
That's right. I'm going to go TLC Beatrice International. Beatrice Foods, established in 1894 under the name of Haskell and Bosworth. Changed his name to Beatrice Food Company to represent the change from dairy um, and grocery products. Um, became a multi-million dollar company. Um, and then in 1987, a Harvard Law graduate went on to grow the business to the first African-American built billion dollar company, mm. TLC Beatrice International. Mm. I'm going to go with uh, Mound Bayou, Mississippi. And I chose this for a reason because it was called the uh, the Land of Promise. Um, they had a post office, they had six churches, a bank, uh, public and private schools, and a newspaper. But the one thing that I liked about it was it was a place that had low crime rate and high morals because gambling and sale of any alcohol was forbidden. That's right. Um, and everyone in the community had to do something. You had to be useful within the community. Um, and it also promoted an essential path of education for the community so they could survive. Um, they had vocational education uh, and to teach people, you know, scientific stuff and agricultural stuff and industrial stuff. Um, and actually that place is actually still 98% black. Um, but the town actually started decreasing because it was high on economics and cotton. And when cotton began to go down, is when that that town started to go down, and there was also one called Blackdom, New Mexico, in which twenty five families owned about fifteen thousand acres of land. Mm -hmm. um, one woman, Maddie Wilson, actually owned six hundred and forty acres herself. Um, but they had a blacksmith shop, a Masonic lodge, a post office, a hotel, and an office building for you to do your land sales and legal and legal work. Um, they also had a Baptist church and a school, but oil was found there in 1919. So resident, so they put their money together and they created the Blackdom Oil Company. And when they began to dig wells in their property land, they say their family is still reaping um, the benefits from those um, That's right. from those uh, from those diggings. Um, but when the town started to go down, they actually gathered on Juneteenth where they invited their white neighbors and they had a baseball game and had a barbecue, but um, the town really didn't survive uh, the Great Depression. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because I just had to look it up. Uh, Chubstown, Georgia. Um, many of y'all know um, Nick Chubb, Chubb. Mm -hmm. uh, his family. Chubstown was founded as a colony of free African-Americans in 1864. <laughs> Chubstown provided goods and services to white and black residents in the surrounding areas in Georgia, um, Floyd County to be exact. Uh, the community eventually serviced its own post office. Uh, however, Chubstown was originally composed of a general store, blacksmith shop, um, they had a syrup mill, sawmill, wagon company, cotton gin, casket company, and several farms, all owned and operated by the Chubb family. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about uh a large company and its correlation to hiring of blacks. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna talk about Pepsi Cola for a quick sec. My grandmother, Georgia Mills, loved Coca-Cola. Loved Coca-Cola, couldn't stand Pepsi Cola. And I remember trying to talk to her about 
changing to Pepsi because they were hiring all these blacks with the advertising. One of the first major companies to do that, they hired a guy named Edward F. Boyd um, to help campaign and advertise Pepsi Cola in the black community, knowing that if you could start getting some of those black dollars, then you could potentially compete with companies like Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling my grandmother how she probably should go to Coke, uh, go to Pepsi because, you know, they were hiring more black people and blacks in commercials. She said, boy, if you don't go get me a Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, um, I, I remember as a kid where seeing commercials, there were a lot of blacks in commercials for Pepsi-Cola. There was none for Coca-Cola. There was none for a lot of the major uh, organizations back then, but Pepsi had Blacks. I remember seeing Duke Ellington and uh, Lionel Hampton in a commercial, mm-hmm. uh, a Pepsi commercial back in, in the day. They would have YM kids from the YMCA. Just for people who may not know, back in the 70s, the YMCA was predominantly black mm-hmm. back then. Um, and then, of course, they had churches and ladies groups, um, insurance conventions. And as we mentioned already, there was a lot of black people in, in insurance back then. Yeah, yeah. So Pepsi-Cola put them in the forefront of their commercials and and in hiring. Mm-hmm. They started hiring them in prominent roles. They weren't just your bottle cappers, as, you, as they would call them. You know, they were actually working in prominent roles in Pepsi in the 60s and the 70s, one of the first companies to do that. That's dope. You got anything? Uh, Tory Tyson uh, is the owner of Blowout Hair Studio. It's three generations passed down. And then... 2016, 2017, um, 23 of the businesses still in Greenwood right now. Uh, the owner started doubling up on the rent and they couldn't afford it. Um, her, la- her salon is the last remaining footprint of what Greenwood was. And in 2017, Greenwood Chamber of Commerce threatened to raise toys rent and raise it three times more over the next three years from 750 to $1,550 a month. And in December of 2020, she received the eviction notice and she then went to court and eventually lost. And in March, she was forced from her space that had been in her family for over three generations um, for 14 years where she called home. She now has a new salon in North Tulsa. Sounds like gentrification to me. So for the people who don't understand gentrification, you take over the land or burn it down, and then you take it over. So you move the people out. Gentrification twice because they burned it down, they rebuilt it, and then now they forced the people out of it. Yeah, so there's nothing we've never seen in history. So same old, same old, like we always say on this podcast, same old, same Same old, same old. Dad gonna get mad at me about this because he's from DC. <laughs> but I can't we can't talk about history of Black Wall Street without talking about what it looks like now. Right. Okay. So when you talk about the Maryland area, um you had uh Glenard in Maryland back in 1910. Uh you had W. Smith purchased land for a community of about 15 people, and it flourished into a middle class suburban neighborhood uh, with a school and a church. Uh, homes, post office, barbershops, restaurants, dry cleaners, and a gas station. Then you also had North Brentwood was uh, uh, developed from a farm tract owned by Captain Wallace Barlett 
who commanded the 19th Infantry of the U.S. Colored Troops during the Civil War. Um, but he built the North Brentwood up um, as it became economically efficiently on his own term. But when you think of today, 10 of the richest black communities in the U.S. today, Maryland owns has five of them. One of them is Friendly, Maryland, uh, where the family income is about $82,827. You have Woodmore, Maryland, where the family income is about $103,438. Are these predominantly black areas? Yes. Yes. Black mm-hmm. communities. Uh, Kettering, Maryland, $107,008 uh, for the households. Fort Washington, Maryland, 114243 and then Mitchville, Maryland, one hundred and eighteen and twenty-two, one hundred eighteen thousand and twenty-two dollars, and this is mostly in Prince George County. Now, since, since you brought up Maryland, <laughs> we we are we gonna stay there for a quick sec. Let's let's talk about Glenarden because Glenarden is a great is a great example of what we talked about when we talk about uh, segregation. Hmm. So you have Glenarden, and you have this area that's predominantly black in Glenarden. And right, literally, right across the street from it, they built a mall called Suitland Mall, right? Right across the street. So now you have a black community, but you have a mall that no black businesses are a part of. So they control the conversation for this black community. And for for Washington Redskins fans, right down the street is where your new stadium is, okay? But this Glenarden community rotted got to the point where you didn't want to go over there unless you had a gun or a bulletproof vest because they control nothing about their community. You had all these other businesses that came in this area that basically controlled the economic development, the jobs, the the politics, um, you name it, the subway. They controlled everything and these people in Glenarden had no say. So that's a great example when we talk about modern day Segregation. Mm-hmm. That is a perfect example. And then you want to talk about Fort Washington. You want to talk about PG County. The reason those guys, those people make a lot of money because they don't work in PG County. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew you was going to have something to say about the people of Maryland because he's from DC. <laughs> what else y'all got? I, I want to mention one more thing because for people that know me, they know my favorite spot to eat is McDonald's. I know y'all on this health kick, and y'all can stay on it. McDonald's, my spot, 1968. I wasn't even born yet. The first black-owned McDonald's franchise opened in Chicago. When you look at commercials for McDonald's, you see blacks all over those commercials on a regular basis, yeah. all the time. Every time you see a, a McDonald's commercial, they it's har- predominantly black. And harmonizing. And harmonizing. <laughs> they got us singing and, and eating. It's hard to believe that it wasn't until 1968 that you had the first black-owned McDonald's franchise. That's that's hard to believe. Y'all been getting my money since 1969, <laughs> since I was born. Yeah. And you brother just owned the first one a year before that? Yeah. Come on. Come on, McDonald's. Come on. Well, we also know how dirty the on, founder man. was. Well, yeah. the so-called founder. The so-called founder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What you got, big dog? What you got, big Tom? <laughs> <laughs> I ain't I don't uh I don't think I got nothing. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. 
and we are back again you can subscribe on the youtube channel mighty motivation network uh we're going to jump right back in and we're going to finish this with some conversation about what we just talked about absolutely go ahead i want to ask i want to pose this question to you guys Uh, we talked about the numbers the despairingly difference in numbers of um black business owners and entrepreneurship compared to our counterparts I just want to know, what's your take on why? Why are those numbers so large? Why do we have so fewer Black-owned businesses and Black entrepreneurships? I'll I'll, I'll give a couple of um, points. Number one is knowledge. Knowledge of how to. So when you talk about Black businesses, most people don't know how to open up a business because you don't know nobody to open up a business. You you're, you're talking about people who have to figure it out on the fly um, because we know most of our businesses come from drug dealers. That's right. So they, they, you can, somebody can teach you that, but they can't teach you how to legally fill out an LLC or legally fill out your, your trademark or those type of things. So when you talk about how to, most people are hustlers. They hustle. We, we know the people who sell DVDs out the back of their trunk. We know people who sell sneakers. We know people who sell clothes out the back of their trunk. In their mind, they're all business owners, but not black businesses per se. They were hustlers. That's right. So, but what, and what, what was the difference? Had no, no knowledge of how to become a business. That's right. So that, that's number one. Number two is startup. When you talk about startup, most people, they'll start something. Black people have great ideas, I like to call it. But when you have a great idea and you begin to work on that idea, you don't have the support that you think is needed for you to be successful. Mm-hmm. So we, that's why we talk about supporting black businesses, whether they are in a, a building or whether they're in their own home or not, is important because when you get that first startup, those first initial six months or six months to a year, if you're not making the type of money that's going to be that's going to allow you to make a living. Mm-hmm. Pay your bills because when you before we even talk about profit, we're just talking about bringing in income to be able to meet the means that you have right now. Mm-hmm. So be, before you even turn over the profit, most black people can't get enough support or have enough information to be able to sustain themselves for six months to a year to where they have to go out and get a job. So what's the the alternative? Get a job because you know if I work for two weeks, I know my check gonna be there. That's right. But entrepreneurship, you don't know. Not guarantee. There's no guarantee. So when you talk about startup, if you don't see that support initially in those first six months, a lot of people say, you know what, forget it. It ain't for me. So those two things are key when it comes to information and support is one of the reasons why we don't. And then third thing, we know the access to capital for black businesses, Absolutely. as we've seen with COVID, because most black businesses went over during COVID. That's so right. when you talk about that, you're talking about not having the same access to capital as white business or investments. So again, like we talk about funneling that money back over, what did Robert Church do? He was able to start his own business, take that money and help other people start a business. That's right. So when we don't see enough other successful black businesses that remain in the community because there's been successful people in Bedford who just didn't remain in Bedford. Right. So right. when you don't have that information to give back to your community, who is there to help you? Who is there to invest in you? So when that money, again, when the money is not circulating, nor the information circulating, it's hard. That's right. It's hard. So we're, we're lacking in that. That's why mentorship is also important when it comes to capital. 
and, and investing is not just money. Investing is time, management, and, and, and mentorship. No matter, where, no matter where you are. That's so, what I think. Just to piggyback off, you know, what, what Bates said, um, you know, Jay had a line that said, you know, my, I asked my uncle, could I sell a million records? And he said, no, I didn't sold a million records like a million times. Right. So a lot of times as black people, we allow other people to put their fears on us and we don't do it. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Raheem with the with too much pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, my my advice to him to be is not only make hoodies, not only make t-shirts, make shorts, make drawers, make right. socks, anything. And but don't when when you want to make those things, don't ask people, you know, you think I should make socks? Because the person that's not doing it is gonna say, nah, ain't nobody gonna buy socks. My thing is. The, the failure comes from not doing it. Mm-hmm. The success is, yo, I had an idea and I did it. Yeah. So yeah, I made 300 shirts. Well, how many you sell? Three, my mom, my brother, and my sister are the only ones that bought it. That's a successful business. Right. Because you sold three of 300 instead of you sold zero of zero because you did nothing. That's right, absolutely. I, I, I kind of, I, I agree 100% with b- what both of you guys said. I also go a step further is that I remember as a kid, we would travel and and I know my dad's watching. So I'm going to be careful while I say this. My my dad had an atlas. And for those that don't know what that is, that's a map. okay? (laughs) And because we didn't have Google and we would map how we were going to travel, which roads you take, all that good stuff. And. If for any reason we would get lost, my dad would not ask anybody for directions. He ain't mm-hmm. stopping at a gas mm-hmm. station and asking anybody jack. Okay. He figured it out, you know, he ain't asking. Uh, as I got older, I used to have that same mindset that if I was traveling somewhere, I ain't asking nobody nothing. Yeah. I'll figure it out. Now I got a little bit older. So you know what? I'm going to stop at this store. You guys remember? Yeah. First time we went to visit my dad in Carolina, we stopped at a store. Yeah. Yo, I get the Rocky Mountain, yeah. man. You know, <laughs> I asked the question. As black people, we have to learn to ask questions. So if I want to start a business, I can't be afraid to go to somebody who has their own business and go, hey, I want to start a business. Can you tell me where I start? Right. I can't be afraid to do that. And for the business owners, yes. you can't feel threatened yes. to answer the question. That's right. Okay. Because I could want to open up the exact same business you have. Right. But at the end of the day, your clientele should be based on you. Right. Mm-hmm. Not, right. not based on the next, right. the next business. So we have to be open to helping each other. But one, you got to ask the question. And we don't, we don't usually do that. The other thing is, is I remember when we first started Hoops Kid. At first, me and Dr. Marvin McGinnis, we funded that out of our pockets mm-hmm. because we didn't want parents to have to pay for anything. Right. So whatever needed to be done, we, we we funded our pocket, you know. And I wasn't making a great deal of money, but I made enough that I could live and I could share. So I would share. Um, and then we started getting sponsors, mm-hmm. people that would sponsor us or give us money or whatever it was. But then Mr. McGinnis said, we ought to get a grant. I said, yeah, it's a great idea, but I don't know how to write no grant. He said, I know some people. Yeah. I'm going to ask them if they can help us write a grant. And he did. And that, that person helped us write a grant. But he asked a question. He reached out to him and said, hey, I need some help. Can you help us? This is what we want to do. We have to be willing to do that. 
instead of saying, I ain't asking them nothing. Right. right? So, and there are going to be times where you're going to have to go to the counterpart to ask the question. They're the ones who made the rules. Right. They can give you the answer. They're not going to do it willingly. You got to force them. Right. And you do that by going back to something we talked about on every podcast. What is the equalizer? Education. Mm -hmm. Education is the equalizer. So you want to start your own business? Instead of going out and spending $50,000 in products, mm -hmm. <laughs> spend some money in educating yourself first. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I do graphics for people from time to time. And a lot of times people are working on websites and they want graphics to go on their websites and business cards and all that. But they don't want to pay the price. Right. Right. So as I just told you, I don't usually charge people, but they want to know, well, how much would it charge to build the website and for somebody to house the website? That's going to cost you mm -hmm. if you wanted to do certain things. Well, I don't want to do all that. How much did you spend in product? Oh, I spent this in product. Mm -hmm. So you got all this product, but you don't want to spend any money on advertising it or being able to sell it. Right. That makes no sense. That's what we call a hustle because mm -hmm. it's in your trunk. Yeah. If you want to make it a business, you have to learn to spend your money wisely so that you can call yourself a business. Right. Having product is not the business. Mm -hmm. Being able to sell it is the business. Mm -hmm. How do you advertise it and how do you pay me for it? Mm -hmm. That's the business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Common the, the common fact of business is where there's a demand, there's a supply. supply. Right. Okay. How do I get my product to you? Mm -hmm. If I'm gonna put it in my trunk, that's a hustle, not a business. Right. We we're gonna keep saying that until people understand that. So it's all those things and then putting them together to come up with what is called a business plan. Mm -hmm. Get your business plan and talk to some people, ask some questions, get some more information and be willing to invest in the business plan, not just the product. Right. OK, because most of the time, the product is in what sales you sell. About. Absolutely. If most people invest not in the product. They invest in you because of who you are. Absolutely. So when you talk about you can be the best cook and have a restaurant. But if you're not the type of person that I want to buy from, then why am I coming to you? Absolutely. So when you talk about, let's, let's look at McDonald's for a reason. McDonald's is not the greatest place to eat. That's but what right. do they have? They have stuff for kids. They have toys. Mm -hmm. So that entices you to come there. So you're not buying McDonald's food. You're buying Ronald McDonald. That's right. You're you know buying the saying? brand. Yeah. So you're buying the brand and you are the brand. So. One of the things that black people have to do, you got to learn how to communicate. That's right. You have to learn how to communicate, not just to black people. You have to learn how to communicate to different audiences. So there, there was a guy in the mall a couple of years ago and he was like, yo, man, I'll take some good pictures. You and your wife come over and take some pictures. I said, you might, I gave him money just because I, I seen him out there getting this hustle. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I'm thinking this is bad presentation, right? Look what you're wearing. Look how you're talking. That's right. That That's not professional. That's right. So if you want people to believe in you, even black people, because black people will look at you and say, oh, he just hustling. Right. But if you brand yourself a certain way, that's right. people take you seriously. Absolutely. And there are so many people who, who are not being taken seriously because, again, your website doesn't look good. That's right. You don't have business cards. You don't write your number down. What are you talking about? You should right. have a business card. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? You, you don't have... You don't have um, a Facebook page. You don't have an Instagram. You don't have product on you. You say, no, nah, I'll get with you next week. Mm -hmm. What are you talking That's about? That's a hustle. Yeah, you have to begin to operate like you're a business. That's right. And there's so many people who don't do that. Also, you have to understand, again, when we talk about Tulsa, it was burned down and they rebuilt. You have to be able to, to withstand 
the, the things that's going to come. When you look at Status Barbershop, understand something. Here in Bedford, shout out to Cheney. But when COVID hit, people weren't going to the barbershop. They had to shut down. So a lot of businesses will go under over something small. Oh, what? You didn't meet your, your rent this, this week, so now you're shutting your business down and going to get a nine to that's five? Right. No, don't shut the business down. Get the nine to five and continue to use the nine to five to fund the business. That's right. You, you have to find a way to not give up. And there's so many businesses that start and stop because you can't weather a storm. Right. That's not the way to operate a business. That's right. And that's, uh, you know, and that one of our sponsors is what I told him, uh, T. Well, Cool Breeze kicks. Right. He was like, you know, everybody's selling shoes on Instagram. They're not I buying them. The they're look. buying from you. Right. Yeah. I said, look, at Status Barbershop, you got three barbers selling the same thing. Yeah. That's right. In one place. They all three got different clientele. You That's get right. a different experience when you go to each one of them. That's right. And what and, and the one thing that keeps people coming back, consistency. Yep. If you're consistent with your orders or consistent with your product, people will come back every day. McDonald's is consistent. You're not waiting in line for 30 minutes at McDonald's. That's right. They're consistent giving you that fast food at a high rate. That's right. When you talk about people love Chick-fil-A, consistent. Oh, that's Chick-fil-A, right. you can see their, their line wrapped around the corner and you will see it and say, I'm only going to be in line for 10 minutes. And even if Chick-fil-A mess up, you say, well, y'all normally don't do that. Right. Yeah. You're, you're good. Chick-fil-A should have been giving out the COVID vaccine. Yeah. So they got that thing down to a science. Chick-fil-A is move. consistent. But when we talk about Black-owned businesses, there's two other things we have to talk about. All right. First, as a consumer and you're Black and you go to a Black-owned business, stop asking for the hookup. <laughs> okay. Facts. Stop asking for the hookup. When you go to Walmart, do you go in there and say, right. hey, can I get this TV for 600 Yeah. I know it say 867 but all I got is 600 <laughs> Can I get it? No, you don't do that because I Walmart's going to tell you, get on out of here. I remember the first time we went to Walmart with you and we got to the cash register. One woman was like, did you find everything uh, you was looking for? He was like, nah, I was looking for the free section. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I said, absolutely. And then the second thing is for the black business owners, give me the same customer service yes. that you give the white counterparts. Right. Okay. So if I come into your place of business and I ask for a product and you tell me you can have it on Tuesday, I want it on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Right. The same way you tell the white person you can have it on Tuesday and you get it for him on Tuesday. Right. Why can't I get that? Right. Uh, because we cool? Because you, you know my cell phone number? I can't get that same service. I need that same service that white America gets. Right. And then you will get my business. And the, I can tell you now, the reason a lot of times we don't get that service is because we're looking for the hookup. Right. We go in there looking for the hookup. Stop looking for the hookup. Pay the price that they got advertised. Absolutely. And, and you know, what's happening in Bedford, again, I wish I had a round of applause on here for all the people who are starting their businesses or, or uh, hustles or acting in their gifts. Take time. We talked about this earlier, Pops. Presentation. Presentation. Presentation is everything. That's right. You know, don't post on your social media some, some, some picture that you just took randomly and it's blurry. Take time. Find that black photographer. Black, find that black videographer. Find that that black person that know how to make your business calls. Right. Invest, invest in you. Right. They invest know how to, they know how to do this stuff, man. You don't have to, to go on Google and find and, and look for the latest person to 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 charge you X amount of dollars. No, you you can find the right person. The problem is we're too prideful to say that such and such did it for us. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Even when we talk about yard work, you think about somebody going to get yard work. I promise you, you can go find 
the latest drunk and say, yo, you need 20? Mm-hmm. Yeah, come mow my grass for me. He will hook you up. That's giving you back, that's giving it back to the community because they know how to do this stuff. That's right. You, you just have to be, uh, you have to let your pride go to ask them to do stuff and put the money back into the black pocket. That's right. Black pocket. For, before we get out of here, can can I talk about two people? Go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, Jay-Z, net worth $1.8 billion. Uh, title he bought in 2015 for $56 million. He sold majority of the ownership a few months ago for $297 million. The ones that he asked to come along to invest in title, like Rihanna, Nikki, Usher, Kanye, Madonna, all were co-owners. Their payout of that $297 million was $8.91 million. Mm-hmm. Weeks after that, he sold 50% of his champagne for $600 million. In a month, he made $897 million. Nas, net worth of 70 million. We're talking about two people from the projects. Mm-hmm. Net worth 70 million. Co-founder of Queen, Queensbridge Venture Partners. It's a capitalist com- company. The, in, they invest anywhere from 100000 to 500000 They receive over 100 pitches per month mm-hmm. for new companies seeking capital. Nas's biggest investments are Dropbox, Lyft, PillPack, which is Amazon, which they haven't even came out with yet, which is going um, to be a game changer because it's going to allow you to order your medicine and they're going to deliver it to you. Uh, Pluto TV, Coinbase, which is crypto. Yeah, uh, that, that leads me into um, to wrap this up. You know, the people, shout out to the black people who are start getting into the uh, the investing their money in, in, in stock and stuff like that. Take the time out to really learn it. Like, don't just go off of information that you hear from somebody else and you like actually take time to learn the game to where you can go big or not go at all. That's right. So when you talk about the stock, take the time, take some classes. Um, learn from these wealthy people who, who have been successful. Take the time to learn from somebody that can give you vital information on how to do it. Um, again, with these business owners, people who are just starting their business up, take the time to reach out to people who have been successful. Like, That's right. You have to learn information. If you don't ask, nobody going to tell you. But what they will tell you is you need to go out and get a job and you go work a nine to five for somebody who don't care about you. Right. You know what I mean? So if you really want to take this entrepreneurship thing truthful or, or rightfully, do so and do it the right way. Stick with it. And don't forget to take that money and invest it back into your community because that's how we build this black wealth that that's we right. um, Absolutely. want to say. All right. Love y'all. Peace.